It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. You're a grand old flag. You're a high flying flag. And forever in peace may you wave. You're the emblem of the land I love, the home of the free and the brave. Every heart beats true under red, white, and blue, where there's never a boast or brag. But should old acquaintance be forgot, keep your eye on that grand old flag. There's a feeling comes a stealing, and it sets my brain a reeling when I listen this to the music. This is the other side of, of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, when it comes to the holiday season, Christmas, Hanukkah, New Year's, and the like, a lot of us uh, take stock of our family, our friends, and we think to ourselves about uh, days gone by, uh, an era in our lives and maybe in the lives of uh, the country where things were a bit better than they are now. Well, I am just over the moon thrilled to be joined by someone who has been a witness to and alive for more than a third of the United States' entire existence. Think about that. Uh, B. Franklin is the 98 years young widow of a, a World War II Army photographer and the daughter, believe it or not, of Pep Boys founder Jack. B., thanks so much for joining me on the radio. I appreciate you staying up late with us. Thank you. No problem. Now, uh, B., I think a lot of us just think of Pep Boys as a store where you can buy auto parts. They don't necessarily think of Pep Boys as uh, a place that was actually started by people, but it was, and your father was one of those people. Tell us, uh, what happened? What was the story of the origin of Pep Boys, and what role did your father play? Well, my father spoke very rarely about his association with Pep Boys. Uh, the Pep Boys were Manny, Moe, and Jack. Moe was my uncle, and Jack was my father. And uh, I believe, as I said, my dad rarely spoke about it, but I believe that Manny and Moe were in the Navy in uh, World War One, and uh, that's where they met and became friends and decided that they should do something about automobiles because it was just becoming a, a popular item. So they opened um, the Pep Boys, and I believe that they got the name from uh, the gas was named, the gasoline was named Pep, and that's how they got the Pep Boys because they did have a, a uh, uh, Having a senior. Oh, that's okay. You're entitled at uh, at 98. Believe uh, believe me. Uh, You you sound uh, more alert than I do at uh, whatever age I am. Um, uh, How long did uh, your dad stay associated with with Pep Boys? Do you remember? Just a few years. He left in uh, I think in 1928, and in 1929, he he had made a bargain with my uncle that he would not go in competition with Pep Boys. So we came to New York, and uh, for one year, he uh, commuted five days a week from Philadelphia to New York and opened 
Strauss stories. And uh, so he did very well with Strauss stories. That's great. He, that's great. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad uh, he he didn't it, have to struggle at least financially. Your husband uh, was uh, a fascinating, uh, fascinating person who has taken some of the most iconic photos during World War II. Corporal Jerry Franklin, for three years, was a uh, U.S. Army photographer with the uh, Signal Corps. And uh, he was in Europe. He was in North Africa. He took photos of Eisenhower, FDR, many others. Tell me, uh, how did you guys meet? Well, it's a long story. Um, he had a best friend whose name was Oscar, and Oscar and I had a date. It was a weekend date to uh, go uh, go into the city and go dancing, and uh, on Saturday night and Sunday we were going to go to uh, see the Giants football game, and then go for dinner, and uh, so that was. Uh, on a Thursday, November 1st, the doorbell rang, and this young man came in. He said his name was Jerry Franklin, and Oscar, had, they were best friends, and Oscar asked him if he'd like to go on a double date. So uh, my husband, Jerry, said, oh, yeah, sure. So uh, Saturday, we went into the city. I don't remember what hotel it was, but uh, they had an orchestra and dancing. And so we went in and had to, uh, a light dinner. And, uh, but for, for, that was the first date was, uh, let me see, the first, I think it was the November 4th. But the, on November 3rd, or November 2nd, rather, the doorbell rang and there was Jerry Franklin again. And she said, I just happened to be passing by in the car, and I thought you might like to accompany me. I have to pick up something for my brother-in-law, with whom my husband was living. So I said, oh, sure. So we went on that little date, and then he brought me home, and he said, okay, I'll see you Saturday. Saturday night, we go to the hotel, and we sit, sit down, the four of us, and Jerry gets up when the music starts, and instead of asking his date to dance, he walked around the table and asked me to dance. <laughs> so I said, oh, sure, I love dancing. So we spent the whole um, set, set, set segment of the dancing, the music, dancing. And now we went back to the table and... Uh, after they, the band took a break, the music starts again, and Jerry again says, would you like to go dancing? And But this time, I really liked him. So I said, sure. That was Saturday night. My date, Oscar, was not too happy. Oh, I can imagine, he, sure. And he gave it me a, and a sense of the florist to send me a beautiful orchid to wear Saturday night, so that really irritated him. But uh, uh, Sunday, we went to the football game. We drove to the stadium, and uh, it was really funny because Jerry was uh, was sitting on my right. I was 
There were three of us were in the front seat. Jerry was on my right, holding my hands, and Oscar was driving with one hand with his arm around my shoulder. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, after that, we had a wonderful time. Uh, and, And did you guys get married before the war or after the war? No, I didn't even know Jerry at the beginning of the war. So uh, it was he had come home, and uh, I believe it was middle of October of 1945. And uh, uh, we, we started dating. It was really funny how we started dating because one Monday following the weekend, he came to my home and he said, uh, I really like you, but I think I, I, I can't date you because Oscar is my best friend. So I said, well, don't I have anything to say about it? <laughs> so he said, oh, sure. So I said, well, I would like to date you too. So I said, can I use your telephone? I showed him where the phone was and I, he, I hear him say, Oscar, this is Jerry. I want you to know that I wanted to date B, and uh, I just wanted to let you know about it. And I hope you're not angry. And Oscar said, no, that's okay. You can date her. So that started it. We dated each other, dated with one another every day of November. Now, my parents had left November 1st for a month in Mexico. And when they came back on November 28th, I sat down with my parents and I said, Jerry and I are in love and we want to get married. So we would like to get married in, um, over the holidays and uh, get no, date, uh, engaged over the holidays and married in June. And my mother said, absolutely not. You haven't dated enough and so on and so forth. No, you cannot. So we walked out of the house, and as we're walking down the street, I said to Jerry, my mother is never going to approve us getting married, so let's get married. So the November 30th, we went to Jersey to someone, a lawyer that Jerry knew, and he made arrangements for us to uh, get married. And we didn't tell our folks for, until February. Wow. We that, were married. It takes a lot of gumption to do uh, in any era, but especially uh, back then. We're talking with B. Franklin. So, uh, B., how long were, were you and Jerry married before he uh, unfortunately passed away? 51 years. That's incredible. I, I'm, uh, you know, I'm working on my third year of marriage, and some days it seems very, very trying. Any advice uh, to people on how to have a marriage that lasts a half a century or more? Well, something, I don't know if you think that this is holding, holding a marriage together, but something Jerry told me and insisted upon was that we had to think positively about mm. everything, any situation that came up, anything about health. And uh, that's what I live, still live by, thinking positively. And I've had situations where I really had to think positively about 
So, um, well, uh, yeah, that's such a, a great, uh, a great philosophy. And I try to do that as well. And I know I'm sure everybody's had some tough times, but you've actually been a, uh, a survivor of breast cancer. And I know a lot of our listeners have found themselves in a, a similar situation when when they're battling breast cancer or prostate cancer or anything that could potentially be life threatening. How important would you say a positive mental attitude is when you're dealing with something like that? It's very important. Very important. Breast cancer was the first cancer I had. I've had two other cancers. And positive thinking, I'm, I have such a strong feeling about being well because of, what I, of the way I live. And uh, that's the only thing I can recommend. Well, that's absolutely terrific. One of the things that I'm concerned with is not just hopefully living as as long as you've managed to live, but staying as sharp as you clearly are. There are uh, some days where I can't remember the name of a, a film or a book or uh, or you know whatever else someone in the news. And I start to wonder, well, you know, am I in danger of, uh, you know, uh, losing my marbles? What advice do you have from, for people who, whether at any age, as how they can stay sharp, mentally sharp, uh, later in life? There's always people that suggest things like crossword puzzles, things like uh, exercise. What do you do? What's the B. Franklin methodology at staying so razor sharp at, mentally at 98? Well, physically, I, my balance is very bad, so I now have a, a caregiver just to make sure that I don't fall down as many times as I've fallen in my life. And uh, I forget things also. You know, I, I uh, don't remember things. I, I, I go to, temp, to uh, the synagogue, and people greet me, and... I don't, and I was very active in temple. I spent a lot of time going to services, and we had a gift shop, and I ran the gift shop, went shop, uh, buying uh, merchandise for the gift shop. Uh, and I don't recognize, oh, I recognize the people, but I can't come up with their names sometimes. And that's embarrassing for me. But I just, know that this is my life, this is the way it's going to be, and I accept it. And that's all I can say. Oh, I did exercise when I could, and uh, I did a lot of walking, and uh, I think that's that's Mm -hmm. it, yeah. I did do crossword puzzles also. But I'm not too sharp about doing coursework puzzles anymore. <laughs> I have a feeling you're probably better at I, than I am at it these days. Um, your husband, as I mentioned, was an eyewitness to some of the most historic scenes in American history, probably in world history, with his role as a World War II photographer. How did he uh, find himself to be in such a position where he could do things like photograph FDR and Dwight Eisenhower, photographs that are still reprinted in books and history books to this day? Well, uh, before the the war, he worked in a... uh a business that was that wasn't photography, 
They were doing things for photography, developing um, uh, movies, developing still pictures. And uh, he loved that, you know, being in that industry. So when he joined the Army and they asked, you know, what um, abilities he had, and he told them about his life with photography, they sent him to, uh, I think it was originally in uh, Long Island City, where there was a, a building that the Army had taken over, and they were training young men to how to work with um, cameras and whatever else it was, and taught them a little bit of German, a little bit of Italian, because that's where, you know, he was going to be. And so that's how he became the photographer. And some of the pictures are terrible to see. Oh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, You also have interacted with some of the greatest cultural icons that there are uh, at your home in Long Island. You've actually hosted uh, people like uh, the uh, boxer Rocky Graziano. How did you find yourself crossing paths with Rocky Graziano? I don't know how Jerry Jerry met him where, but, but they they liked each other. So Rocky became part of our destination sometimes to be with Rocky and his wife Norma, and. Uh, Rocky came to one of my son's bar mitzvah, and he, I had to ask him to start cursing one night when he was <laughs> in the house. And I, I threatened him. I said, Rocky, you keep talking like that, and you're going, I'm going to ask you to leave the house. So he was a real character, but it was a lot of fun. I, I can imagine. Lastly, I'll end with what a lot of people this time of year might consider the most important question. Obviously, it's still it's still Hanukkah, and a lot of people are working on uh, their various Hanukkah recipes. Maybe it's latkes, maybe it's something else. I uh, have it on good authority that uh, you are pretty world-renowned for your method of making fried matzah. Let us in on the, uh, the secret here, B. Well... I used to be able to get raw chicken fat, but uh, I don't cook that much anymore, so I don't have the chickens in the house to carve out the the chicken fat. But when I could, I would render the chicken fat with onions, and then I would, after it was, you know, liquid, I put it in jar, and that's... That was what I used. I didn't use butter. I didn't use oil. I used the chicken fat. That was the basis of it. That's how my mother made fried matzah. And then I made made it just the way anybody would do. I just crack, break up the, the matzah, run hot water over it to soften it, and uh, drain the water off. Put the uh, chicken fat in the frying pan and cut up some onion and put that in the frying pan. Put the softened matzah in it. Let it cook around a little bit on one side. Flip it over on the other side. And that was it. And 
I miss the chicken fat because I've we have a couple of kosher butchers in the area, and I used to be able to get raw chicken fat from one of them, and then he passed away. Oh. And uh, so uh, that's the key: it's raw chicken fat, which is oh, in short oh, supply these days. Yes, yes, um, and just do you know? Just melt, put the. Uh, Raw chicken fat in a pan. Put a lighter under it. Put some onion in it with the with the raw, you know, the Got liquid. It. Got it. And that's it. B, uh, it is a treat talking with you. Uh, maybe we can do this again next year. That'd be fun. I hope you have a great Hanukkah, and uh, I appreciate you joining me on the radio. Let's talk again. Okay, very good. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Uh, it's my pleasure. If you want to comment on uh, any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. midnight. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.